I'm Ellie Harrison, I'm an artist based in Glasgow. And what I've got here, this is the first week of media coverage from the Glasgow Effect. This is a document, it's probably about an inch thick, um, printed out by Creative Scotland for me actually, because they have a subscription to press data thing which will search for every time Creative Scotland is mentioned in the media and then send them a copy of it. So. Their inbox was pretty full that week, <laughs> just put it that way. I'm arts journalist Jan Patience and you're listening to The Work of Art, a podcast by the National Galleries of Scotland. In this three-part series, we'll be looking at the issues faced by artists working in Scotland today, from running their own spaces to funding their own work, and what happens when public opinion is divided. In this episode, we talk to artists who have created work funded by the public purse. The Kelpies are one of the most famous public artworks in Scotland. They were created by artist Andy Scott and stand on the banks of the Forth and Clyde Canal near Falkirk. The Kelpies project now must be 10, 12, maybe 12 years ago now since it first uh, came to light. I was asked on the strength of my previous equine works, I was asked to have a look at a project that Scottish Canal's chief engineers had, uh, well they were then called British Waterways Scotland, but they'd uh, dreamt up a title, the Kelpies, and they had a, a very vague uh, slab-like idea for some monolithic structure to do with uh, the canal over the, 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 fourth, the far end of the Forth and Clyde over in the, in the Falkirk side. And they came to me and asked me if I would bring some life to this project and, and come up with some ideas. And I came up with something which wasn't at all what they expected, but nevertheless seemed to take traction and eventually grew to become what we now know uh, over there at the Helix Park in Falkirk as the 100 foot high, 30 metres, 300 tonne Kelpies. At the time, the project raised questions about spending large sums of public money on art. The question of uh, funding um, big, uh, you know, public artworks in, in, in what we're calling an age of austerity is an interesting topic, and obviously I'm right at the forefront of that argument or debate uh, discussion. And the interesting thing with the Kelpies, for example, because they are a very prominent example in Scotland, is that while they were being designed and eventually fabricated and installed, they created uh, very valuable contracts at a very desperate time for a lot of local companies and national companies. And all of them were very, were very valuable. In some cases, job-saving, um, you know, uh, appointments to to create the the sculptures. Not just myself, but many, many other companies. And and I think that's an interesting thing that they actually did create, you know, valuable financial. Uh, they generated valuable, valuable financial support for those businesses during the process. And since then, now that they're up, they're bringing in millions of pounds a year in terms of added footfall tourists uh, to the area and uh, they've actually been now recognised as a valuable investment in the area. So it is an interesting subject, and it's easy to take pot shots at them from the outside, but once people start to look into it more, and they'll find out it's a much more layered and complex situation, they've, they've actually become a great success in terms of putting the local area on the map. I mean, people are travelling from all over the world to Falkirk. I don't mean that with disrespect to good people of Falkirk, but previously it wasn't on the tourist map, you know, and it is now, so I think that investment should be thought through more sometimes. <music> Every year, the Scottish Government allocates a budget to the cultural sector, which includes visual art. This budget is divided among galleries, organisations and individuals. 
They can use the funding for a variety of things, including creating exhibitions, providing education programmes, undertaking artistic projects and commissioning or purchasing artworks. Controversy over the latter is nothing new. Here at the National Galleries of Scotland, the press and public were outraged when the gallery purchased In the Car by American pop artist Roy Lichtenstein in 1985. We received letters including this one I'm, I'm reading out here. Uh, the purchase price of the painting was £100,000 and the writer explains how that would buy 16,666 ventilators and 100,000 dinners. They say, so you think this is art? Any child who has a flair for drawing could do this comic rubbish. I think it is high time that you so-called experts are asked to appear in front of a panel of lawyers, accountants, not to mention the medical profession. To sum up, I think you are a bloody raving idiot. This painting is now one of the most popular works in the entire collection. Tell me a bit about this painting here by William Gear. Looking further back, senior curator Alice Strang explains the story behind one of the pivotal paintings in A New Era, an exhibition of Scottish modern art held at the National Galleries of Scotland in 2018. Well, William Gear was one of 60 artists invited by the newly founded Arts Council of Great Britain to paint on a canvas measuring 45 by 60 inches, so it's a substantial size, uh, to make a work for inclusion in an exhibition called 60 Paintings for 51 as part of the Festival of Britain, and it was held at the Suffolk Galleries in London. And Gear made this work, it's called Autumn Landscape, and you can see from its palette of browns and yellows and oranges that, that root in the season of autumn and he related it to having sort of organic, natural origins. And some people have seen in it the view of lying underneath a tree and looking up through the branches as the wind blows and the, the sunlight um, is, is tossed around by the movement of the leaves. Um, and it was one of five works in the exhibition that was awarded a £500 purchase prize by the Arts Council of Great Britain. Um, other awards went to Lucian Freud, Ivan Hitchens, Robert Medley and Claude Rogers, but it was this painting which caused a furore, because even now it's quite a tough piece of abstraction, it's not pretending to be beautiful, and £500 in 1951 was a large, a significant sum of money. And um, it featured in the BBC's Any Questions radio programme. Um, uh, the Liberal MP for I in Suffolk asked questions about it in Parliament about this use of taxpayers' money. But William Gear was quite sanguine about the whole thing and said, well, look, this is how you launch a career. Spending public money on art still walks hand in hand with controversy as Glasgow-based artist Ellie Harrison found out. I was lucky enough to get £15,000 grant from Creative Scotland. That is the top limit of the smallest grant pool that they, they give out. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, as soon as you're taking public money, you kind of become public property to a certain extent and people want to see a return on their investment. They started this rumour that I was from London, which is true, but I haven't lived in London since 1998, um, and that I'd just been paid £15,000 to move up here to see how 
the Glaswegians do it, <laughs> which is 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 you know complete um, lie, and people kind of understandably got a bit annoyed that somebody was being paid this public money to do this so-called poverty safari. We'll hear more from Ellie later, but her project raises the key question, should art be publicly funded? Artist David Harding is former head of the Department of Environmental Art at Glasgow School of Art, which produced a number of Turner Prize winners and nominees. From 1968 to 1978, David was town artist in the new town of Glenrothes in Fife. The press coverage he received in that role worked in his favour. I became a public figure because one contributing factor was that the local press were very interested. Mm. And, uh, you know, for instance, they would publish a letter from someone in a part of the town saying, why don't we have art in our part of the town? Why is it all being in this other these other parts? And I, I did become a public figure in the town. And that was to my advantage, you know, mm-hmm. and it meant I could... Uh, engage broad spectrums of uh, the society out there north is you know from the art club to neighborhood uh, groups mm-hmm. and school children yeah i used to have to find money from the housing budget to create the works there were no separate budgets for the art and what kind of works did you create in the beginning then? Well in the beginning you know I began actually very quietly I didn't want to kind of shock you know people there were some people in the development corporation board who were opposed to the idea Um, and I didn't want to make the grand kind of modernist gesture (laughs) that they would say oh this is what I expected. So it began with small um, interventions in within these new neighbourhoods of um, play forms. Mm-hmm. And there was a budget there for play. I used to use the budget of, you know, play areas and landscape and paving mm-hmm. contracts. So anything I could skim off them, right. I would use. You had to be quite inventive then, kind of commercially almost. Indeed, you know, Indeed. To, yeah, yeah, to make sure things happened. And then that was able then to grow into, you know, larger works once the confidence had been built, you know. So much so that um, quite a few works appeared and the chief architect of the town actually sent me a memo saying, I'm reading in the press about all these artworks and I know nothing about them. So even the chief architect didn't know (laughs) that they were being made. So um, that's almost... It describes the kind of power that I had by then. Mm-hmm. It was um, just let them go on with it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I never had to pass anything through any board or committee. So yeah. it was great. So tell me about Henge. The Henge, yeah, um, in the particular area of uh, of Glenothes. Yeah, it was uh, kind of the entrance, almost you could say into that area. It's a nice landscaped area. It was intended to be the main feature that drew you into this uh, neighbourhood. And um, 13 concrete slabs in the form of a spiral, you know, replicating, you know, the stone circles. Um, 
and Celtic spirals of Scottish uh, archaeology. Um, um, on the inside faces are basically the heroes and heroines of my time in 1970. You know. Right. Such as? Pelly. <laughs> 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 um, Kennedy, Che Guevara, you know, Mother Teresa, Solzhenitsyn. So, so much so that um, my neighbour was a sergeant of the police and uh, he, he came to me and he said, we've got a detective inspector. He said, came in the other day and he said, you know, every time I go into that hand, you learn something new. Brilliant, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. So you, it was like oh. having a canvas that was just, it was a town, really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was oh, fantastic. A great opportunity. Toby Paterson was commissioned by BBC Scotland to create a large artwork for the site of their new headquarters in Glasgow. To make the artwork, Toby worked with a host of partners including architects, designers and local residents. The most prominent work, I suppose, in terms of something that is, is very visible within public space is, is my work, Poised Array, outside uh, the BBC Scotland building at Pacific Quay which was finished in uh, the autumn uh, of 2007. So right in the middle of the brown bounce, uh, if we can remember those days. Um, so yeah, f a work that already feels like it was from a very different time and one that I have uh, a, a developing relationship with. What happens with public art? Once it's out there, I'm sort of interested in once you put it out into the public domain, well, it's, what happens? Yeah, it's, it's a mix. I think my feelings about that thing... Uh, uh, I always seem to refer to it as a thing. Um, it's it's interesting because because quite often the the way it's not visible to to an audience necessarily, but the way a, as an artist you feel about it that it's always going to be your your view of that work is always going to be coloured by the process um, that you went through to to make it. And I had real aspirations, and those were supported by um, by many at the BBC that I was working with and also by the, the job architect from Chipperfields who I, I became good friends with and that aspiration was that other works could appear at different scales throughout the building that because of, of kind of pressures on the construction programme and budgets as well but mainly the, the programme meant that that didn't, that didn't happen so what was meant to be here's a big, maybe slightly bombastic work, was meant to have a little bit of counterpoint elsewhere within within the, the institution. Uh, and unfortunately that didn't happen, so we ended up with the big, the big showy thing, um, which is a big, a big thing that is on an architectural scale and sits there in relation to the building. It's, it, it, it very much came out of conversations around the facades and at the point that it was realized that the square outside was very underdeveloped and was essentially you know a kind of windswept bus turning circle which it still is to a, to a degree you know it's got a little bit softened so in that sense it was kind of quite a harsh 
harsh environment to kind of place something into so it needed to be quite big and big and robust it's actually I should put this in as a sort of caveat up front that I think it's bearing up pretty well <laughs> uh, and I no longer lie in bed when the 70 mile an hour winds go and uh, going oh my goodness is that all right because it was extremely well built but inevitably things happened so at one point uh, a, a big it must have been a big arctic backed into the corner of the work uh, which was then repaired without consultation to me and it's not bad but it's not bang on uh, and um, also there were various sort of guano based incidents that have been uh, uh, courtesy of passing gulls that uh, have been dealt with with varying degrees of success I mean essentially what should happen with that work is it should just get jet washed once a year and that'll be absolutely fine but somebody'd had a go at one of the elements of it with a with something abrasive so that needs uh needs a bit of a kind of polish or a, a, a recoat and i do quite like the idea um of of watching how this thing changes and how things change around it despite the sort of memento mori aspect of that and i can't believe it's 10 over 10 years since it was completed but all of all of that kind of for an artist i think feeds into the 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 experience of of uh, and gives depth to the experience of putting putting work in in the public realm people feel a sense of ownership over uh, public art that's what interests me also i think that you go past um all sorts of little little works that you don't you might not even notice maybe they're on your way to work or they're on your way to your house you know and you, you just you, there's a sense of comfort almost would you say in in these things being there and changing perhaps as you know as time goes past yeah yeah i think so i mean i think um that's an aspiration of mine that that you make a work that can can operate on a few different levels from you know my end here's a major thing and it's an exposition of some of my ideas and it was a lot of work and I'm either proud of it or I have issues with it um, down to somebody thinking I'll be home in 10 minutes because I'm passing that thing you know I really like that I think that's an important aspect of the whole the whole procedure In 2016, Ellie Harrison devised what she called an action research project called the Glasgow Effect. Her idea was that she would stay in Glasgow, her home city, for a whole year, cutting her carbon footprint and measuring the impact she would have working as an artist in a community-based context. When the story broke in early 2016 that Ellie had received £15,000 from Creative Scotland to carry out the project, there was a public outcry in the press and on social media. I think the Glasgow Fit was an example of a sort of new form of public art, really, that could only emerge in the era of social media. And because, you know, a lot of what I'm interested in is dealing with this issue of how do we operate in a more sustainable way and the contradictions that you face as an artist as who somebody wants to to have a sustainable life but is in the business of making stuff um so i'm interested in how you can make spectacles create an impact 
without producing material things. And I think that the Glasgow effect and the social media storm that it kicked off is an example of that because it was a huge project. You know, a million people saw the Facebook page in the first week. Um, it's you can't even comprehend those numbers and yeah so in terms of public impact it is enormous um and yes it may it wasn't always reflecting on glasgow in the most positive light but that was part of it you know to draw attention to the problems that we face in this city um with the hope of of somebody uh starting to do something more about it and mobilizing people maybe pissed off with me to start to take action themselves in the third and last episode in this series we'll hear from artists working in rural communities in scotland from aberdeenshire to orkney how do you work as an artist when you're geographically isolated What are the advantages and challenges of working with a small local collective of artists as opposed to operating in a city? The Work of Art is a three-part series brought to you by the National Galleries of Scotland with me, Jan Patience.